Excited Utterance, the Evidence and Proof Podcast. Episode 111, Evan Burnick, 14th Amendment, Confrontation. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Alex Nunn, from the University of Arkansas School of Law. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence and proof. We bring virtual workshops to you throughout the academic year. Today on the podcast, we're joined by Evan Burnick, an assistant professor at the Northern Illinois University College of Law. Evan and I's conversation turns towards the Confrontation Clause, and in particular, we examine the intersection of Confrontation Clause jurisprudence and originalism. Now, of course, in Crawford v. Washington, in Justice Scalia's kind of key decision that distanced the court from the Ohio v. Roberts era of confrontation and towards this kind of new frontier of confrontation grounded in testimonial statements, the Supreme Court purported that the original meaning, the original understanding of the Confrontation Clause mandated that pivot. But as you'll hear in my conversation with Evan today, the Supreme Court's originalist analysis was perhaps flawed in a number of different ways. In particular, Evan highlights that Crawford completely failed to appreciate the understanding of the Confrontation Clause at the time of the enactment of the 14th Amendment in the 19th century. That omission has perhaps spawned myriad problems, which is the focus of my conversation with Evan today. Evan, welcome to Excited Utterance. Thank you. Happy to be here. Excited to be here. So today we're talking about the Confrontation Clause, right? And I think most of our listeners will know that the modern era of confrontation jurisprudence, if you will, it spawned with the Supreme Court's decision in Crawford v. Washington. That's kind of like the launching point after the Ohio v. Roberts era for modern confrontation jurisprudence. So let's start there if we can. Remind us, how did Crawford kind of change the confrontation landscape? Right. So before Crawford, there was Roberts. And to be familiar with the Roberts era is to develop some initial sympathy for Justice Scalia's basic project in Crawford. Under Roberts, the law of confrontation was basically mapped onto the law of hearsay. There was a preference in favor of confrontation, but that preference could be overcome by showing that an unavailable witness's out-of-court statements either fell within a firmly rooted hearsay exception or it bore particularized guarantees of trustworthiness. Simply stated, confrontation wasn't really an individual right to resist state power. It was an evidentiary tool for the state that could be discarded if it wasn't deemed to serve its purpose in a particular instance. So this makes it quite similar, Roberts that is, to a number of Burger Court innovations in criminal procedure that calibrated or tailored the scope of rights, like the right against self-incrimination, to this perceived categorical imperative of truth-seeking and disfavored rights that were thought to impede the search for truth, like the right to exclude evidence unlawfully required through the exclusionary rule. So Crawford purported to change the confrontation landscape by replacing a cost-benefit balancing test that reliably favored the prosecution with a hard rule of confrontation that favored defendants. To do away with reliability as a freestanding consideration in the admission of out-of-court statements and to unhook confrontation from hearsay. That was the promise. 
And in kind of revolutionizing this field, if you will, Crawford made, at least according to your article, three core claims about the original meaning of the confrontation clause. So what were those claims at the core of Crawford? So at the core of Crawford, first, there is a rule of cross-examination. The idea is that the confrontation rights includes a right to cross-examination, and it's violated by the admission of certain kinds of -of out-of-court statements in a criminal trial unless the declarance is genuinely unavailable and the defendant had a previous opportunity to cross-examine the declarance. So that's rule of cross-examination. Second, you have the testimonial hearsay limitation. And this says that that prior rule, the rule of cross-examination, applies only to testimonial out-of-court statements, not to all hearsay statements, which is different than under the Roberts formula applied to all hearsay statements. And these testimonial statements are basically, they're comparable to formal witness examinations taken by justices of the peace during the 18th century. And more generally, they're made primarily for the purpose of preparing a prosecution. That's testimonial, the hearsay limitation. Finally, there's this idea that there are certain historically rooted exceptions to this rule that the court has laid down of cross-examination. Crawford itself identifies only one exception to the rule that testimonial hearsay must be confronted, dying declarations. And these are declarations by someone being killed about the identity of the perpetrator. But Crawford also says that other kinds of non-testimonial hearsay could be admitted. Business records, statements in furtherance of a conspiracy. And subsequent cases have identified other historically rooted exceptions, including cases in which the availability of a witness has been procured by intimidation, assassination, or bribery. And Evan, how has Crawford's originalist claims, if you will, held up? That is, do scholars generally agree that, hey, the originalist analysis in Crawford, it was spot on, or do they generally think that Crawford had things a little bit off? So... After a brief period in the sun, the shade has really fallen on Crawford's original meaning analysis. None of the core claims that Crawford stakes about original meaning hold up entirely, although some of them have held up better than others. The testimonial hearsay limitation in particular attracted early and aggressive criticism because it seems entirely indefensible as a claim about original meaning. Chief Justice Rehnquist, concurring in Crawford, took the majority to task for the testimonial hearsay limitation. He argued that at the time of the founding, the rule was that hearsay of any kind was no evidence against the accused in criminal cases and was excluded. And he cited scholarship in support of that argument that has held up really well. In fact, it's been reinforced. At the risk of singling out one among many scholars in whose footsteps I'm kind of following here, It's the work of Thomas Davies that I think has most exhaustively detailed Crawford's errors and made plain just how badly it botches the evidence that it cites in support of the testimonial hearsay limitation. So is it fair to say, Evan, that perhaps because of those weaknesses in Crawford's originalist analysis, that the key precedent really hasn't held up that well? That's part of the problem. Crawford has aged very poorly for a number of reasons that I intend to detail in the paper. It was a compromise with original meaning, and it didn't admit to its compromises. And it doesn't work as a means of protecting the rights of suspects and defendants to meet their accusers in open court before a jury of their peers. 
the coalition that once supported it has fractured under pressure from the prosecutorial lobby and pro-carceral tough-on-crime advocacy centered around Crawford's purportedly debilitating effect on domestic violence and gang-related prosecution. It doesn't do nothing, as uh, Jeff Bellin has shown in his work on the Crawford and the lower courts, but the core problem with Crawford is that it does little with the impression of doing a lot in the name of original meaning, and it more generally has become part of a enduring and depressing story about procedural rights that seem to give a great deal initially and then turn out to be worth really little but legitimate a whole lot of an unjust criminal legal system. Perfect. So with that foundation, I want to turn to your paper and the really cool move that you make, because you note that at least part of Crawford's problem lies in the fact that it only considers the Confrontation Clause's meaning at the time of the founding. And from an originalist perspective, what does that focus perhaps omit? So what it omits, at the risk of being hyperbolic, is half centuries worth of freedom struggles against white supremacy, how those struggles changed popular understanding of the Constitution, and how that popular understanding eventually became entrenched in the public meaning of the Reconstruction Amendments, specifically the 14th Amendments. The right to confrontation was both a shield and a sword for black Americans, enslaved and free, and their white allies against the Fugitive Slave Act, among which the chief constitutional complaints against it was that it enabled enslavers to kidnap black people via ex parte evidence submitted by enslavers that was never scrutinized by any jury. Confrontation during this struggle became increasingly associated not merely with physical presence before the accused, but with cross-examination and with juries and as a means not only of securing the rights of individuals, but about movement building, building a mass movement, in this case, that eventually captured Congress and the presidency and defeated white supremacy on the battlefield. And the argument that I'm going to develop in this paper is that when you neglect this history, you don't just get the public meaning of the 14th Amendment wrong, which you do, you undermine any claim to moral legitimacy that the Constitution might have as a consequence of its ultimate responsiveness to the claims of justice, and you deprive people today of what could be a potent mechanism for reducing the harms inflicted by the criminal legal system that is far more fearsome in scope and scale than the founders could have imagined. And I really want to follow up on this point because I think it's really interesting. How exactly had our understanding of confrontation evolved by the time of the enactment of the 14th Amendment? What were the differences between our understanding of confrontation at that point as compared to a public understanding of confrontation at the time of the founding? Simply put, confrontation had hardened. Old exceptions to what developed into a hard rule of cross-examination were discarded. Prior cross-examination became a rule in all criminal cases for all hearsay, with only one exception, the dying declaration nothing else. And it became increasingly associated not with evidentiary reliability, which was actually the roots of some of the exceptions that you can find during the founding era, the idea being that certain procedures known as Marian procedures were reliable enough that cross-examination was not required, but with popular participation in the criminal legal system and resistance to state power. That imperative of popular participation and resistance to state power took precedence over evidentiary reliability. So the meaning of confrontation changed and the purpose of confrontation changed in ways that are highly significant. 
And we've touched on this point a couple of times now, but I want to drive it home. How does perhaps incorporating the understanding of confrontation at the time of the enactment of the 14th Amendment, how does it change our understanding of the original meaning of the confrontation clause? If we're doing kind of an originalist analysis, trying to figure out what the confrontation clause is all about, what should that analysis reveal now that we're not just focusing on the founding, but we're also incorporating insights from the time of the enactment of the 14th Amendment? Crawford Court sold the Confrontation Clause short. It sold the 14th Amendment even shorter. The 14th Amendment incorporates a right to confrontation that was more sweeping and thicker than Justice Scalia ever thought it was or subsequent case law that has qualified Crawford has made it. And the lesson here, I think, extends beyond confrontation to our engagements with any rights that we think were incorporated by the 14th Amendment. We should be awake to the possibility that what we find with Crawford and what we find is a change in the public meaning of a right over the course of time, in the course of struggle, in the course of events that profoundly shape people's constitutional understanding and were shaped by it, that if you look at the history of resistance to slavery and antebellum period, we'll find rights that look different than the ones that we find at the founding, even if we find some of the same terms used and associated with them. The right to be protected against unreasonable searches and seizures, the right to a jury trial, all of these are going to be shaped by that antebellum period, and they are going to look different in 1868 than they are in 1791. And Crawford, by looking only to 1791, even though it was a state case, Crawford v. Washington, I don't think is exceptional in this regard and should guide the way that the court, to the extent that it purports to be committed to originalism in any significant way, engages with incorporated rights. Should this more robust understanding of the originalist meaning of the Confrontation Clause, should it change how we view or how we perceive Crawford in terms of a key precedent in this area? Should we be more critical of it? Should we recognize that it has significant flaws? How do you think your model here or your historical analysis changes our perception of Crawford? Crawford is a dishonest opinion. It offers itself as hard-nosed originalism that takes no prisoners, that makes no compromises, that is just going where the evidence leads, and it completely botches the evidence in ways that, if you look at the transcripts at oral arguments, are downstream of concerns about the practical effects of going with something as broad and sweeping as the original confrontation rights in a context in which police depend upon confidential informants and undercover work and basically testimony that would have to be confronted at trial if we didn't compromise a general rule against the admission of hearsay evidence in criminal trials. Perfect. So let's say that I'm in your camp, that I agree with you that Crawford has significant problems. What do you think moving forward we can do about it? Should there be a push to completely reinvent the space? Of course, we have new justices on the court now who might be amenable to a different approach to confrontation. Is there perhaps an evolution in the doctrine that could prove productive? What do you think is the best next steps, assuming that we buy your critique of Crawford? I don't think that Crawford is really particularly likely to be fundamentally revisited. 
but I do think that there are ways to work within its basic structure and its commitments that would reduce the amount of harm that it does and do so in a way that's consistent with the original purpose of confrontation rights. So what do I mean concretely by that? First of all, we need to acknowledge what's happened here. We need to acknowledge that what we are getting is not all of original meaning, but some kind of compromise. And once we acknowledge that, I think we'll be more prepared to tinker with it in ways that are productive. So this whole testimonial purpose stuff. Okay, so testimonial statements as a subset of hearsay statements that alone need to be confronted, that's historically bunk. But testimonial purpose inquiry can be less harmful than it currently is. Right now, testimonial purpose looks to the purpose of the witness who is offering a statement. It does not look to the purpose of the law enforcement officials or the prosecutors who are eliciting those statements. The confrontation rights concern with overweening state power and the priority that it places on individual resistance to state power and ensuring that investigative and prosecutorial techniques that are problematic or exposed in the light of a courtroom would be well served by focusing not on the purpose for which statements are offered by witnesses, but the purposes for which statements are used at trial. So you would develop a rule according to which all accusatory hearsay that tends to establish an element of a crime or the identification of the defendant should be considered testimonial. If it does this, it's a substitute for live testimony. The intentions of the witness are not the point. The point is the use by the prosecution. So that's one thing. The other concrete things that could be done is apply Crawford to different stages of the criminal legal process that strict originalism might not be entirely comfortable with simply because these processes did not exist in the same way at the time that confrontation was developed. If we know that we are already compromising with original meaning, we'd be more prepared to accept these innovations. So apply Crawford to plea negotiations, apply Crawford to felony sentencing proceedings, require that witness statements that are given in the context of or with an eye to these proceedings also be confronted because they can also affect the degree to which people are punished. Finally, there are a number of states that effectively require or enable prosecutors to do away with their burden of producing evidence and witnesses by requiring that defendants affirmatively identify and demands that certain witnesses be confronted rather than having the prosecution bear that burden. The Supreme Court has in a couple of cases said that's basically okay, that's consistent with confrontation. It's not, and it undermines the burden-shifting purpose of confrontation, which is to make life difficult for the prosecution. And finally, I know this is a lot, but the rule of in-person testimony should be strengthened. Marilyn v. Craig, which allows uh, witnesses in cases involving abuse against children to testify via a closed circuit camera, should be overruled as contrary to the original meaning and the purpose of confrontation. Confrontation is always physical. There's no substitute for it. Last question, Evan. This has been a really great discussion, and I've really enjoyed it. What type of additional paper might shed more insight on this issue? What's next for the literature in this space? 
So there's a broader project of revisiting procedural rights that were salient in the context of resistance to white supremacy during the antebellum period and seeing how they changed under the pressures of that period that I think is important to originalism and important to an honest reckoning with our country's racial history that needs to proceed. So asking questions about what the Fourth Amendment meant during the antebellum period, how it changed, jury rights, Fifth Amendment, self-incrimination, all of this stuff should be revisited in light of that. But more broadly, with respect to the Confrontation Clause, I think that there's a broader discussion to be had about the degree to which it is possible for even a court that is primarily composed of avowed originalists and justices who are at least open to originalist arguments to go full bore original meaning with respect to anything. And if the answer is no, that is just super unlikely owing to kind of the structural forces that made Crawford what it was, then maybe we should be doing, and by we, I mean practicing originalists, should be thinking about doing second best originalism all the time. That should actually be our ideal point in terms of offering prescriptions to judges rather than by saying, okay, the best of possible worlds is one in which you would have full bore originalism because ought implies can. And if we can't do it, if Crawford, like the leading example of originalism's power to win over even a conservative justice who doesn't have a ton of sympathy for the rights of criminal defendants to reach a pro-defendant decision. If, if this sterling example of the power of originalism isn't what it was made out to be, maybe we should recalibrate our priorities and aim for something that's actually more doable. Evan, this has been an absolutely tremendous interview. I really enjoyed listening to you talk about this topic. Thanks so much for coming on Excited Utterance. Absolutely, Alex. I've enjoyed this a lot, and I hope to speak to you again. Alongside its intrinsic qualities, I think confrontation jurisprudence is particularly interesting because it inspires so many unorthodox coalitions at the Supreme Court level. Take, for example, as a first launching point here, the Crawford v. Washington decision itself. There, as I mentioned in my opening remarks, we had Justice Scalia authoring the majority opinion, and he was joined by Justice Stevens, Kennedy, Souter, Thomas, Ginsburg, and Breyer. In Williams v. Illinois, perhaps the most recent authoritative confrontation clause case that we have from the court, you have a plurality opinion from Justice Alito, where he is joined by Justices Breyer, Kennedy, and Roberts, you have an opinion concurring in the judgment from Justice Thomas, and then you have dissenters in the form of Justice Scalia, Justice Ginsburg, and Justice Sotomayor. And for the sake of time, I won't go through any further cases, but I think it's safe to say that this is a hallmark of confrontation jurisprudence. It inspires, as I mentioned initially, these unorthodox coalitions, and perhaps it does that because of Crawford's failings. Perhaps we have just kind of this morass or this mess of jurisprudence because Crawford's originalist claims about the meaning of the Confrontation Clause are not clear, they're not convincing, but as Evan mentioned today, they're rather questionable. Leaving the justices to fill the gaps through a myriad of alternative approaches. 
Of course, the future of confrontation jurisprudence is probably going to be as interesting as these past few years have been. The Hemphill case was just argued at the Supreme Court level just a few weeks ago, and I believe that this will be the first case where we'll see where Justices Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett land on this confrontation issue. Of course, each of those justices will be sympathetic to originalist argumentation, and I look forward to seeing if they decide to revisit Crawford's originalist claims in line with a suggestion of Evan today. Support for Excited Utterance is generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program, the University of Arkansas School of Law, as well as the Vanderbilt Institute for Digital Learning. The producer of Excited Utterance is Ed Chang, and the production editor is Madeline DiPietro. Additional production assistance is provided by Francesca Rutherford, and music is provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. I'm your host today, Alex Nunn, and I do hope you'll join us next time when we explore another piece in the world of evidence and proof.